0: And when we had parted from them and set sail, we by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there Petraea. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come inside of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on aboard the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage to Tyre, we arrived at, oof, Palatamis? Sorry, Jerry. And we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. And the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came from Judea. And coming to us, he he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at, at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles." Bring us to the house of Manassan of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge.
1: Good morning, church. It's good to see everyone this morning. I loved watching that video and just seeing all of our young people as they are going on, graduating from college, graduating from high school, and, of course, this last year, interacting with so many of our high school uh, graduates, as they are trying to make that decision, and uh, where do I go next? What college do I go to? And that's a that is the first of many hard, hard decisions uh, that they that young people that you have to make trying to determine and discern God's will. Uh, and so, over the last year, or even longer, in some of your cases, as we've just kind of checked in and talked and and seen how you've struggled with this. It, it just reflects something that you're going to experience for the rest of your life, honestly, which is why this topic is so relevant this morning. Uh, I, I noticed at the very last slide, um, Trey Wheeler's apparently majoring in baseball and economics. I noticed it didn't say, Trey, baseball, girls, and economics, which that's good, you know. But but I do remember, uh, you know, when, uh, when Trey was... Uh, uh, being recruited by these different colleges, how hard that, that whole search was as they were like, Where does God want me? Right? And he was trying to determine this, uh, just like uh, Laura was like, What college do I go to? And you're trying to discern and determine God's will. And uh, um, I, I remember talking to Trey, he, he had the opportunity to go to UNC and go to the promised land and pitch with the, with the Tar Hills. But apparently it was God's will for him to stay in Egypt and go to South Carolina instead. Um, but uh, no, <laughs> no, I'm teasing him there. That's all right. And of course, Brian's over here. He's, he's going to Miami next year to pitch down at Miami. And so that would be kind of neat to see if God would like to put you guys against each other in a national championship. And then your brother's closing. And uh, you know we'll, we'll just see how that plays out. And if we can be a church divided, wouldn't that be cool, right? All right, you know. Uh, seriously, though, as you guys are looking at your colleges, uh, this is just the first of many decisions where you're trying to find out what is God's will for my life. Uh, where do I go to college? And and many of all of us have been there. Where do I go to college? Do I take this job or don't I take this job? Uh, do I go to that church or this church? Uh, do I date this person? Don't I date that person? Do I keep dating this person? Do I marry this person? Uh, you know, Do I move to this city? Do I have more children? Do I put my children in this, this school? Do I end this marriage? I, I mean, there's so many decisions in life. Um, and then as you get older, it's, do I go to this doctor or that doctor for this treatment? Do I go to any doctor for this treatment? Some of these decisions get very serious, don't they? As we're trying to discern what is God's will for our life. And, and, and around that process of trying to determine God's will, tension and anxiety arises. There is tension that inevitably arises around that process of trying to determine what is God's will. Always. I mean, we, we experienced it with the, the sale of the property here at, our, here at Covenant and going to the next day, what is God's will? And just the, the, there's tension there and trying to, to determine what is it that God wants us to do. There's tension. But there's a second kind of tension also around God's will. It is the tension that is created when we know God's will And then we are faced with having to obey God's will and do what we now believe is the right thing to do. You see, there is tension around God's will in discovering it and then obeying it. And the interesting thing is, is in our passage this morning, as it relates to Paul and his journey to Jerusalem, both of these tensions are here. And so we're gonna turn our attention to the passage and see the tension of God's will. And in the first 12 verses, we see the tension of knowing God's will. Now to, to catch you up on the context, in verse one, it says, when we had parted from them and set sail. That, that's referring back to last week, uh, last week's message, chapter 20. They have now left Ephesus. Remember, he meets with the elders at the church of Ephesus. There's this incredibly emotional scene where this, these people who he has poured his life into for three years, establishing this fantastic church and he gives them the news, I know that I will never see you again. That, I, I, that, that, that this is it. And they are emotional and they are crying and, and they, they don't want this to be the end of their relationship with Paul. And you even get a, a hint of this in the word "parted." That word "parted" it, it kind of—it's a Greek word. that gives you the, a, a picture like we've seen in maybe movies where a couple is having to say goodbye, and and, and they had to be torn apart, right? this is what's happening. And that's what the word literally means. You have to tear ourselves away from each other. So they're torn, they tear each other, they tear themselves away from each other. And then Paul and his his group of, of fellow disciples, they get into a little boat and they begin to make little coastal journeys and little coastal ships. And finally they land in a port where they can get on a much bigger ship and they make the 400 mile journey across the Mediterranean and they come to Syria. They're now back in their home area. They landed the court of Tyre, and there in verse four, they, they, they seek out a group of Christians, the church that is there in that city, that They're going to be there for a few days. And verse four gives us a textual conundrum, and it's a conundrum that is then further amplified in verses 11 and 12. If you look at verse four, having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and then notice this phrase. Through the Spirit, they were telling Paul, what's those next few words? Not to go on to Jerusalem. And then you drop down a few verses later. They they get back on the ship. They sail to, further on. They, they then land in Caesarea. The, they, on the next day, we departed. We come to Caesarea. They go to Philip's house. Remember Philip? Many, many moons ago, we looked at the chapter where Philip was with the Ethiopian eunuch. He was one of the original seven deacons, an evangelist. God used him mightily now in the intervening years. He has been living in Caesarea with his daughters and Paul stays at his house and while he is there, Agabus, the prophet, who has also been earlier in the book of Acts, arrives, he's a legitimate prophet, like in the Old Testament sense of the word, and he has this scene in verse 11 coming to us, he took Paul's belt, he bound his own feet and hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him, and that word urged means we begged him, we pleaded with him. This is strong argumentation. This is strong pleading with tears and exhortation. This is, don't go, do not do this kind of wording. We and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. So, both of these scenes, the one entire, well, actually, if you think back, really, the one in Ephesus, now the one in Tyre, now the one in Caesarea, all of these scenes are ratcheting up the tension as it relates to knowing God's will, especially that scene in verse four, where it says, and through the spirit, these disciples say to him, don't go up to Jerusalem. And then Agabus comes along and says, you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be arrested. You're going to be put in prison. So here's the conundrum. I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to think about it, and then I'm going to ask you to raise your hand and give me a vote here, okay? When it, with, in light of these warnings, these words from the, the, the disciples entire from Agabus, about through the Spirit. Don't go to Jerusalem. You're going to be arrested in or you know, you're going to be arrested in Jerusalem. This is what's going to happen. In light of all of that, did Paul miss it? Did Paul just ignore the warnings of God and God's will and just go on and do what it was that he felt like he wanted to do and needed to do regardless of what God wanted him to do? Did Paul miss God's will and go on to Jerusalem and as a result, he's now arrested and he ends up losing his life and dying because of this? Did he blow it? All right, you have a choice, yes, No, or I don't know, okay? All right, actually, I'm gonna give you another one. How's this? If you think there is a better than 50% chance that he blew it, raise your hand. Okay, there's a few of you, all right? If you think, no, he did not blow it. He he was in God's will, raise your hand, okay? it's most of you. How many of you say, "Man, I have no idea on this one"? Raise your hand. Yeah, I tell really you, a lot of you too. Okay. Well, you 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 know you will be comforted to know that there's a lot of division on this. There are some really excellent voices who believe that Paul missed it and got it wrong. For example, uh, Dr. James Boyce, man, I greatly have respected through the years, uh, a wonderful scholar and pastor, firmly believes that Paul missed it. it says, "Hey, his motives." were admirable, they were good. But he missed it, he was stubborn. He says you you read through it all, God never asked him to go to Jerusalem and be arrested and, and be martyred for the faith and think about what it cost the church. He could have gone to Spain, he could have kept doing what he was doing, planting churches and expanding the kingdom. Instead, this effectively puts an end to his church planting ministry. And so he even points to the proof that as he goes up to Jerusalem, as you read in the the upcoming verses, he goes to Jerusalem and he participates in in an idea put before him by James and the elders of Jerusalem that has him going into the temple and participating in something at the temple that was much worse than Peter's actions in Galatia that Paul ended up rebuking Peter over. And so he says, hey, because of his disobedience here, he ends up getting put into a situation at the temple where Paul came this close to participating in Old Testament sacrifices that would have repudiated the very gospel that he had been preaching. And the only reason why he didn't was that God allowed him to get arrested and now he goes to jail and ends up, you know, this is how it plays out. So the arrest actually rescues Paul From participating in something that would have repudiated the very gospel he had been preaching and teaching. So that's a that's a strong argument for now, he missed it. I don't think he missed it though. I think he correctly understood God's will in this matter, and for several reasons why. If you look at those verses clearly, for example, Agabus, he's a prophet of God. He does not say, don't go to Jerusalem. He doesn't say, God says, don't go to Jerusalem. He just says, whoever owns this belt is going to be put in jail, All right? I mean, he's just making a true statement. Uh, what is being said here by Agabus and by these, um, uh, these disciples in Tyre, uh, they aren't necessarily prohibitions, they are predictions, And they are making true statements that through the Holy Spirit, this is what will end up happening. But there's no explicit don't go. In fact, if you look in the underlying Greek, the the negative word, the not word, is not the normal thou shalt not prohibition word. It is a, you know, this this is what's going to happen. It's not a don't go, right? Secondly, if you think about it, these predictions actually are clarifying Revelation that Paul had earlier received. Back in Acts chapter 19, the Holy Spirit had compelled him to go and revisit all the churches in Greece and then to go to Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 20, we read it last week, he tells the uh, elders in Ephesus, and now compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. Well, now he knows. Now he's been told. And I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardship are facing me. So, so these these warnings, these predictions from the disciples in Tyre and from Agabus are now filling in the blank. You could look at this and say this is actually God being gracious to Paul. He's letting him know here's what's coming. Gird yourself, get ready, be prepared. But I think the most convincing uh, reason why this is clearly God's will and he was not disobeying God is what God himself says to Paul later after he is arrested. After he's arrested, uh, you read this in Acts chapter 23, when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, "'Take courage, for as you have testified "'to the facts about me in Jerusalem, "'so you must testify also in Rome.'" You see, this arrest was part of God's will for Paul's life. And what you will see, and we will see this next week, as we will finally conclude our study in the book of Acts, we will go with Paul to Rome, and we will see how his life concludes there in Rome, and his ministry concludes, and how God uses him in the very court of Caesar itself. So did Paul miss it? No. But was there tension around the discernment and the knowing of God's will? Absolutely. This is very common. Church is always going to happen. In fact, it never happens more than when your choices are good ones like between the University of South Carolina and the University of North Carolina or other kinds of choices like that. It's hard. When you're trying to make choices between good and best, how do you discern God's will? And there's the tension of knowing it. But then there's the tension of obeying God's will. In verse 13, then Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. This passage serves to remind us of a couple of things. There are two common threats that often happen to, to threaten our obedience, which in turn increases the tension around uh, obeying God's will. The, the, the first very common threat that we will experience is the loving but get misguided input and opinions and guidance that we receive from friends and family. It's interesting how the tension in Paul's life was exacerbated, was increased by the very people who so loved him. Did you catch what he says here? What are you doing? Weeping and what? breaking my heart in their, in their words and in their exhortations and in their pleadings to don't do this. Don't go to Jerusalem. In other words, don't obey what you are so clearly convinced and convicted as, that is. this is God's will for you. Don't do this. You are, you are breaking my heart. You're making it more difficult to obey. They meant well, but their objections were becoming emotional obstacles that Paul now had to overcome. Have you ever noticed that so often when you are struggling with knowing and then obeying God's will, there always seems to be at least one person in your life who has a direct line to God that knows God's will for your life, (laughs) They always know God's will for your life. Now, their own life can be a complete wreck, you know, but they know God's will for your life and they never hesitate to share it with you, right? And it's always bad when they're in your small group. That's even worse, right? (laughs) Right. And uh, it always happens. And then, of course, it's because oftentimes they love you. And, and they want what's best for you, and they think they know what's best for you. And sometimes they do. Sometimes God is speaking through those advisors. And and in this summer, we are going to be in a series of messages called God's wisdom. We all want to know God's will, and to know God's will, we have to know God's wisdom. And God's wisdom in Scripture has a lot to say in how do we make decisions and how do we know God's will. And, and one of those is the multitude of counselors and, and in, in, in talking to people and getting input as we seek to know God's will. But so often they can end up becoming an obstacle, especially when someone is so adamantly encouraging something that is not what God wants. Another very common threat are popular, but unbiblical philosophies that are dominant in the culture or within the church itself. So for example, even today in our world, there is a popular Christian message that if it hurts, it just can't be from God. You know, Prosperity Gospel is teaching this. Kent Hughes puts it like this. He summarizes it. God does not want me to suffer pain. I am in pain. Therefore, I am not in the will of God. And so we don't suffer. And, and, and if, if, if what I am about to do is leading me into suffering, well, well, this can't be from God. I'm supposed to be comfortable and enjoying life and happy. Church, do, do you know that never in the Bible that I know of, does it say that it is clearly God's will that we are always going to be happy? Now, joy, it's a different story. But you see, joy is not necessarily happiness. You can be joyful in the middle of suffering and tribulation and trials. In fact, what we see is that God inevitably calls every one of us to take up the cross and follow him. And this means suffering. Oswald Chambers in his book, My Utmost for His Highest, writes, to choose to suffer means that there is something wrong. To choose God's will, even if it means suffering, is a very different thing. No healthy saint ever chooses suffering. He chooses God's will as Jesus did, whether it means suffering or not. Paul isn't choosing to suffer. He's choosing to obey God's will for his life. But in this choice, it puts him on the same road that Jesus took, a road which is ultimately going to lead to suffering. And it's suffering for the sake of Jesus and suffering for the sake of Jesus' people and suffering for the sake of the gospel. And this isn't the first time that Paul has experienced this. And this is the norm for anyone who follows Jesus who has to take up the cross and follow him. At some point in our life, we have to suffer and we will be called upon to suffer for the gospel. Before this event ever happens, Paul writes to the Corinthians these words, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Church, there is always tension when we have to choose between the perceived safety and comfort of disobedience and the actual security and the discomfort of obedience. There's always going to be tension there. But thankfully, we don't have to face that tension and those moments alone. When God's will is hard he encourages us and he cares for us and one of the primary ways he does it is through the fellowship and support of other believers and this is what you see in the passage here verse 14 since he would not be persuaded we ceased and said let the will of the lord be done this is not oh well he outlasted us this stubborn that's not what's happening here they realize okay, this is God's will. This is what he's supposed to be doing. And then notice their response. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. This is the group that's been traveling with him and some of the disciples from Caesarea. So, so people who lived in Caesarea said, you know, we're going to go up. If, if, you, if you're facing this, Paul, we're going to go up with you to Jerusalem. And they went ahead and they brought him to the house of Nason of Cyprus, one of those first disciples from the day of Pentecost with whom we should lodge. How important it is that when we have to face God's will and we're obeying God's will and we are living in God's will and, and at that moment as we are living in God's will, we have to suffer. And it can be the suffering from outside persecution. It can be the suffering of disease and just the the, the tribulation and trials of life that occur. But this is part of God's will for us to walk and live right now in our lives. How comforting it is to face those events with brothers and sisters in Christ who put their arms around us and they love us and they support us. I've I've just been rejoicing over how many times this year I've seen this happen and play out in our church body. I've even seen it play out in two different instances in the last week where people have, have gone through serious life events and people in their covenant groups rallied around them to support them, to be at the hospital, to sit with them while waiting for the surgery to get done or to come into the house and to to put, uh, lay hands and to pray and give that uh, emotional and spiritual support as you, as you face the regimen of chemo and radiation or whatever it may be. That kind of support, this is God's gift to us as believers biblical community to help us do it. And so if you are in God's, want to be facing God's will and living in God's will, and you have to come through these times where you take up the cross and follow him and you try to do this, not in biblical community, you are facing a stacked deck. You're going to find it harder to obey God's will than what is necessary because you're trying to do it without the very gifts of encouragement and care and assistance that God is providing for you within his covenant family. There's the tension of knowing it, and there's the tension of obeying it. Well, so what? So what? Where do we go from here? How do we apply this idea in our lives? I think there's a couple of things for us to consider. First, there's a question. A question that I think all of us are concerned with, especially I think as we are young people you, you know you, what college do I, this is the first of many as we pointed out, but can I, you know none of us ever get to the point young people as I mentioned, your whole life is ahead of you this is the first of many, many many times where you are going to what well, is god's will for my life and so the question is how can I know god's will there are there all kinds of things that I was thinking about putting before you like I said we'll we'll get into this even more in the summer in the series of God's wisdom but so this morning you know being a church that looks to our to our heritage and our past and our history and we pull from it as we often also pull from the modern I said let's go back in history and Augustine who once wrote love when it comes to God's will love God and do what you want. Isn't that nice? Love God and do what you want. But you notice, I put a comma in there. What's that comma called when you put it before the end? The Okay, I can't remember. You English people aren't helping me in a sentence. You know, the English, uh, whatever. Okay, I put the comma in there before the end intentionally. Because so oftentimes people go, love God and do what you want. Great, I love God, here I go. You know, I'm gonna just do whatever I want. I put the comma in there, to force us to pause. Because what's to the left of the comma is vitally important in that statement. Love God. The comma is so important. It is key to the rest of the sentence. I mean, think about what it means to love God and how those words played out in our lives will affect us knowing and discerning God's will. Love God. When, I, when I'm loving God, the fullness of that word, that, that changes the disposition and the perspective of our hearts towards God. It's all about God at that point. We want to, to serve God. It's, it's the surrendering of our wills. It, when the, the perspective and disposition of our hearts is God first, that's, that's when we can honestly pray like Jesus in the garden not my will be done but thy will be done that's when we're we're coming to these decisions and we're praying Lord Jesus I don't know what to do but what I do know is that I do not belong to myself I have been bought with a price and I belong to you and I simply want to honor you with my life my will is yours Direct my steps. You see, the love God portion of this changes the disposition of our hearts so that we don't go into the decision presupposing what the outcome should be, preloaded with our desires and our wants, which then skews the outcome. We we go in thinking, God, I belong to you. when, When it's loving God, I believe that the law of God is good and it's right. So as I'm facing these decisions, I look at God's law and the moral absolutes of God's law, and I see them for what they are, the absolute commandments and guidance of God, not divine suggestions and cosmic good ideas. How many times have spoken with Christians who are saying, I'm, I'm struggling to find God's will in this particular matter. And, the, and as they explain the matter, I'm looking at them and saying, what do you mean? What do you mean? The Bible explicitly says, thou shalt not. It's it unambiguous. This is God's will. Right here, you don't have to wonder what God's will for your life is. You're not struggling with knowing God's will. The struggle here is obeying God's will because it's already been revealed. See, the issue in that case is the love God portion. There's a problem with the love God side of the comma. This is where we get tripped up so often. When the love God is there, we are, we are spending time in scripture and coming to know God and we're praying regularly asking for the wisdom of God and the ministry of the Holy Spirit is a part of our life on a daily basis. And there's all these little moments in our lives where we are experiencing the illumination of the Holy Spirit guiding and directing us in all of these little ways. And then it's not that big of a jump when it comes to something big because we already have a track record and a lifestyle of depending upon the Holy Spirit for all of these little things. And, and why does that occur? Because of the love God. So the, the love God side of this statement is huge. It's love God. And what's the great commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, spirit, and love your what? Neighbor. What is God's will? Well, how does it, how does it affect my neighbor? How does it affect my fellow man? Love God. When we start with love God, The priorities of our heart end up becoming his priorities. Our priorities are his priorities. And so then we can do what we want, because what we want to do is what God wants us to do. Love God, do what you want. One final application. It's not enough to know God's will. And we've seen it throughout this passage and this morning. We must also obey it to see his kingdom grow in and through us. It will be difficult. It will be painful. And so the question is, how do we obey God at those moments when it is difficult, like it was in this story with Paul? I would suggest two things here, very practically. Going back to loving God, do what you want. We have to appropriate the love of God in Jesus Christ. That daily appropriation of the love of God in our lives, our obedience, it's rooted in those words, love God. Thinking about how God has loved us in Jesus, how God has first loved us, not only does that motivate us to want to obey God, meditating and appropriating that truth of the gospel is what then empowers us to obey God. It motivates us and it empowers us. This is the power of the gospel. This is why we continually as Christians have to come back to Jesus and the cross and what God has done for us in Jesus and rest in that right there because it gives us the heart that wants to obey and it gives us the power to obey when it's difficult. So this consistent daily appropriating of the love of God in Christ and then secondly, committing ourselves to the mission of God through Christ. Why would Paul continue on to Jerusalem knowing that it would end in his arrest? Because Paul knew how important this act was for the kingdom of God. We don't have time to go into all of it, but at the end of Romans, in chapter 15, he alludes to the fact that the church was in a critical place. That The church in Jerusalem, the schisms and the, the attitude towards Gentile Christians from the Jews in Jerusalem was endangering the unity of, And the future of the church. And so he went around collecting this massive offering from all of these Gentile churches. And he was convinced, I need to go back to Jerusalem and bring this sacrificial offering from all of these Gentile churches and lay it at the feet of all of these Jewish Christians who were being told these false messages from Judaizers and from all of these Pharisaical type of pseudo-Christians and put a rest to all of this dissension so that they can see that in Christ there's no Jew nor Gentile, male or female, bond or free. And if that means that I have to be arrested and that I have to end up giving up my life then so be it because the cause of Christ in the church and in the world is greater than my life. That's why he went to Jerusalem. And when you think about it, this is why Jesus went to Jerusalem. Luke is intentionally drawing a parallel between what Paul does and what Jesus did. Going to Jerusalem knowing he will face suffering, knowing that he will be betrayed, knowing that he will be lied about, knowing that he will be arrested, knowing that he will be tortured, knowing that he will be imprisoned, knowing that he will be put on death, but knowing that it needs to be done so that the kingdom of God can be established on earth. That is the power of the gospel at work in someone's life may it be so for us too lord jesus thank you for this example that you give us of what you can do in someone's life who is following you as through your spirit you transform them to walk the same road that you walk for us so that we can be reconciled to god Lord Jesus, may we as your people here, 21st century covenant church, may you do that work of grace in our hearts so that we are resolved to joyfully obey and do your will regardless of the sacrifice and the cost. Lord, I thank you for this many examples that we see already evident in this church. Would you magnify it? So that people in our community come to to know Christ through our church. That people who are in our church, as they take up the cross, they experience the, the gospel and the power of the gospel and the fellowship of the gospel that comes only through your grace. And may all this happen, Lord Jesus, so that you will be magnified in us. I pray these things for your glory. Amen.